is there anything you do not want to talk about or have uh, us ask you? No, I think everything's fair game. Okay. Um, tell us your most personal secret that you've never told. <laughs> no, just joking. Wow. All right. <laughs> Boy, that, that's our new opening question now, isn't it? <laughs> all right, all right. We're going to start losing guests. They're all dead! Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And our other friend, Candice Nola. Say hello, Candice. Hello. Today we're joined by Krista Carmen. Say hello, Krista. Hello. Let's get right into it. What got you into horror? Oh, wow. Um, gosh. Like horror writing or horror as a genre? Or Literally both? any way you want to take that. All right. Um, I, <clears throat> I always liked the spookier side of like children's books like um I had a ton of spooky picture books so I I three and a half years ago had a daughter and if I needed like a reminder of the fact my parents saved all my books so like going and getting all these books out of their basement I was like oh yeah my memory has served me correctly and like these were all my favorite books so we I had all of the um the Nicola books and like all the scary stories to tell in the dark and the, you know, spookier babysitters club stuff, like the chiller series and the RL Stein. And um, so I was always into the spookier side of literature. Um, I had like a weird experience when I was in third grade at a sleepover where I was forced to watch the leprechaun film and nightmare on Elm street three um, as a third grader, so I like stayed away from horror films for a while, but um, I tried again at like 13 with Halloween and I was hooked and I've just always been a horror film and lit fan ever since. Dream Warriors is arguably, arguably one of the best in that series. Yeah, I'll give That's you excellent. that. That's excellent. Brennan, jump in, sir. I'm just imagining like your your carefully curated set of Babysitter's Club books, but it's only the ones with these like slightly dark angles. Anything that's too like glitzy just gets gets the boot. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious, how does that you know initial love of like uh, elementary creepiness uh, gestate? Where does it go from there? Who are some of the authors that you? geared towards as you hit junior high high school and beyond yeah so i've got the same boring answer that everyone does like stephen king i'm sitting beside a bookshelf with like every stephen king book um i read i think the first two that i read were the shining and salem's lot so instantly i was just like hooked and terrified and um remember like reading the scene in salem's lot that Mark Petrie comes to the window and having to like sneak across my room to get the cross out of my jewelry box that I never wore before or since. Um, And then I'm like kind of embarrassed to say too that one of my early like uh, bridge authors between like a lot more horror and the stuff I read as a kid was like I'll, I'll make it a little better and just say it was early, early James Patterson, but like Kiss the Girls and um, Along Came a Spider, like those first those ones, were were, right? Like those were, they were good. Uh, now, who knows I, who the hell is I can't writing those now, things. The early Alex Cross stories, those are, those are fucking good. Yeah. The Kiss the Girls book, I remember being like truly terrified while reading that. Like mm. this is genuinely creepy. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I read a lot of like Sydney Sheldon and stuff that wasn't necessarily horror, a lot of Dean Koontz, but just stuff that my parents had tons of copies of that just, you know, I could read tons and tons of books of the same author. Cause I'm definitely like, once I find an author, I like to read everything they've written. Completest. Love it. Uh, so at what point does that kind of transform into a want to tell your own story? Or is that something that was there alongside the babysitters club and just grew with your love of uh, horror literature. So definitely not. I definitely had a big gap. Um, again, like looking back, I guess maybe it wasn't as much of a gap as it felt like, because I did have like a lot of like 
self-bound picture books that I had written and, um, you know, like joint or uh, submitted story competitions and things. But it wasn't, I think it was just something that I did along with a billion other things kids do. It wasn't something that really stuck out in my mind. I didn't know that I wanted to be a writer for years and years. I also, it's also kind of embarrassing to say, but like, for whatever reason, it didn't occur to me that I could be a writer, even though I was into reading so much. Um, And I had read Stephen King's On Writing a bunch of times. And for whatever reason, like the third time I wrote it, I mean, sorry, (laughs) the third time I read it, uh, it finally clicked to me. Like I was, I was all the way at the end. I was reading his list of recommended books and it's just like, I was like, I, I could also write like, and I had written stuff. I had written like bad memoir type stuff and (laughs) journal entries and like the shitty beginnings of like terrible novels that I wasn't even sure that's what I was writing. Um, but that's when it finally clicked. I think it was like 2014 early 2014 and I just like went home and and because I get obsessed with everything instantly once I'm fixated on it I like instantly had to go upstairs and like I'm gonna write a story and then I never stopped so that's awesome I I feel like the beginning of you know my writing journey is kind of similar in that I just I just kind of had the thought of writers have a certain set of tools and I don't have those tools and it was almost just kind of like plain fact um, and then just one day you're like, well, screw it. What if, what if I try it? Um, and then I think it's interesting that you say that you never, you know, you never really looked back. So what was your focus at first? Did you straight up try to write novels or did you keep it, you know, did you follow that sage advice that you should master the short story before you try to write a novel? So I, I kind of did a little bit of both. I, definitely was writing a novel right off the bat, but I didn't try to do anything with it. I just like, I, I, I wrote a novel and simultaneously was writing short stories that I was sending in to try to get published. Um, And I instantly felt much more confident with short stories. Um, I felt like they came really naturally to me. Like I was very pleasantly surprised that soon on the heels of the thought of like, oh, I could be a writer. When I actually tried to write some short stories, I was like, oh, and it's not even that hard. This is awesome. But then when I tried to write novels, I was like, oh, shit, this is really hard. So the novel writing took took me a while. Did you write that with the intention of like, just to write it? Or was it a conscious thought that you want to kind of see how it works just to practice because I, I did that with the first two or three novels um where you wanted to find my voice and I'm wondering if you had a similar experience I don't think I was like mature enough to think oh I'm practicing I know like I, I do think as I was writing it, I was like oh maybe this could be awesome and then <laughs> when I really finished it and like started to get some feedback from some beta readers and Um, and I was reading a lot more and I like was pretty aware, like, okay, like, like there was a twist in my novel and I knew it wasn't very good. Like I knew that like, there was like, uh, an identity reveal and I knew that like, you had to be kind of a fucking moron to like, not know exactly what was going on. And I just kind of ignored that fact, but eventually I was just like, yeah, this one's staying in the trunk. That's how you learn yeah. to write, though. Yeah. Candice, go ahead. So now, now that you have some experience in both the short story and the novels, um, is there one that you prefer more than the other now? Or do you enjoy them each for different reasons, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question because... My my answer to that question would have been so different, like at different intervals over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like I just said, it I so quickly gravitated to short stories and felt like I was so much better at them. So at first I would have said 100% short stories over novels. Um, and then I kind of felt like they were pretty even, like where I had written, you know, three, four or five novels. I think I've written five now. Um, 
and I felt a little more confident, but I was still writing a ton of short stories and I still felt pretty good at it right now. Like mm-hmm. in, in this, in like 2023, I feel like I've written, I've written novels the last three years that like kind of each took up the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I feel all of a sudden like I'm more skilled. I'm just more in the headspace of writing longer yeah. fiction. Like I'm like, oh, I'm going to build this character and all oh, I've got to like, you know, keep some information back so I can do some reveals later. Um, and I got invited to a few anthologies this year and I would sit down and I'd write them and I'm like, oh, I feel a little rusty. Like I feel like <laughs> I'm not as strong at that. I had to kind of think like, how do I do I need 200 again? more pages. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I um, I think I'd written three no three novels you before I ever writing. wrote a short story. Oh wow! And like, how do you feel I now? Like, wonder- and I put them out, and then the first short story, the first anthem I was ever invited to, I struggled because I was like, I don't know how. I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't know how, but I was so used to doing the longer form that every time I tried to write something shorter, it just kept getting longer. I know. So it took work to get in that headspace of, okay, I need to jump right into it and then build from there. And then (laughs) it took me a good year to get in that headspace of, okay, this was a short story. I need to get in that mindset because I had, I just went straight in for the novel and just kept going with that instead of the short stories. But now I think I'm almost in the same mindset as you now, where you can do both the short stories and the novels, but you need to kind of adjust your headspace to get into one frame of mind over the other. I enjoy them each equally, I think, but I do need to take a couple of days to get into that mindset of okay this needs to be short and right to the point and then this needs my world and my characters and everything else so I just always like to ask that one because I struggled with the short story for so long oh yeah it's a whole different thing than writing a novel so it totally is and then there's flash fiction which I loathe I hate it I don't, write any, I don't write it. any flash fiction. Somebody ever. asked me to write one once and I was like, you want me to do what? How many words? <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, I've done a handful since, but that first one, oh my God, it took me almost a month to write a 500 word flash fiction. It was terrible. But it, it, took me, it took me 25 yeah, to 30. Not a it took me 25 to 30 short stories that I wrote before I got one accepted. So I'm a little envious of you, you guys. Well, I think I, I mean my it, first got accepted. Yeah, no, same. I'm and, <laughs> and Brennan's first novel he ever wrote is Slattery Fucking Fall. So you know, whatever. <laughs> hey, I'm different. now Patrick. You know, different, I'm, different I'm, strokes for different I'm, folks. I'm yeah. happily angry. <laughs> I'm happily <laughs> angry. <laughs> so, Brennan, do you want to dive into the novel, yeah. or do you? Okay, can it take us away? I was gonna say Brennan. Like, oh, no, she's just answering for me. Um, I'm very confused. <laughs> thank you, Candace, because <laughs> he has good questions, and I'm ready to like get to the story. Because you know, I love that. So. It'd be okay, funny well, if my... he answered for you and you answer for him. Then I just, <laughs> I don't know what to, I don't know how I'd react. I don't know. You just talk over both of us. It'd be fine. Um, so let's <laughs> let's talk about the daughters of Block Island. Yeah. Um, and I. Sometimes we dive in too quickly. I always like to try and have the author give us a little bit of synopsis so that we don't overstep our bounds and spoil the whole thing. So give us a little uh, back cover. Sure. Um, it, it, the book is a little weird because there is something in the upfront synopsis that like seems like a spoiler. So we do have uh, we do open with a sister getting a letter from Block Island that her a sister that she never knew she had uh, was was trying to contact her and she um, right on the heels of getting this birth certificate as proof that this is her sister and that she was trying to to find her birth mother. She finds out that this uh, young woman was killed on Block Island. 
And so then we um, we do go into Blake, the poor, tragic heroine of the story. We go into her story for, for a bit and we see a little bit about uh, what happened with her trying to find her birth mother on Black Island. Uh, but then we switch to, to Talia's point of view. Um, and there's just a lot of like traditional Gothic set pieces, the big half decayed estate um, in an isolated area and a lot of gloomy weather and buried secrets. And, you know, Blake is essentially an orphan because she was put into foster care at an early age. And uh, she's trying to to figure out the um, secrets of her family's past because she has a feeling that her family's past, even though she didn't know them her whole life, is much more connected to her own past and her future than she ever realized. Very nice. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this book, I think, is the meta aspect. And um, you know, when I when I got partway through it, I was actually really thrilled to see you uh, claim yourself as a Scream fan because that's that's immediately what came to mind is this is Rebecca meets Scream. And actually, the further I went, I realized that it, it it's almost this is almost uh, like Stephen Graham Jones' uh, "My Heart Is a Chainsaw" books, but switch out the slasher for the the Victorian Gothic because we have you know that kind of like. Um, the, the referential uh, pieces of it and the self-awareness. Um, so I wonder if you would kind of take us through how it developed from a Gothic story into almost a commentary on a Gothic story. So that's a very easy answer to that question. And it's because I wanted to write this book. I wanted to write the quintessential Gothic. But as I started writing it, I was super bored. And I was like, why is this? Like, I couldn't quite figure out why. Like, I, I don't particularly like writing first drafts anyway. My favorite thing to do is to have the whole thing done and on the page, even if it's terrible, and then get to, like, edit and fix and play around. Um, and I really don't love the first draft process. But with this, I was trying to pump out, you know, I usually do 1,200 words a day when I'm writing a first draft of a novel. Um, and I was, it was like pulling teeth. Like I was sitting down and I was just, ah, I love the idea of this story, but why is it so boring? And I realized it was because it's kind of hard to do just a straight Gothic, even if you, you know, I, I, at first I thought my thing was going to be like, okay, this is going to be interesting because people don't think, even though, you know, Brennan, we're in like their little Rhode Island horror kind of community, and there is New England Gothic and Rhode Island Gothic, like that is a thing, but most people don't consider like the very nautical, beachy, vacation-y Block Island tourist spot as something that would lend itself to like traditional Gothic. So when I discovered the existence or the previous existence of White Hall, which the setting of my novel did used to exist on Block Island. It was this huge mansion that Henry Searles um, had built in the late 1800s. And people on the island called it, called it Searles Folly because it was just such a ridiculous <laughs> building. It was um, bilaterally symmetrical. So there was like his and her wings that were the same setup. And he lived on one half and his wife lived on the other half and just like very bizarre and a little bit scandalous. Like she ended up changing her will for him and it was just like a weird situation. So when I discovered that this mansion actually existed, I was like, oh, this is the thing that's going to make my gothic novel different. It's the place like Block Island is it's that's so interesting. It was a real place. And then I started writing it and I was like, Ew, no, not enough. I'm so <laughs> bored. Like, you know, it was it was all the same trappings. Um, so yeah, then I just figured, like, I'm writing a gothic novel, and I know I'm writing a gothic novel, and that's what's making it suck. What if my characters knew they were in a gothic novel? Like, how can I do that? So then I made Blake be a little bit, you know, shaky, early recovery, not a lot of self-esteem, some kind of undiagnosed mental health stuff okay, she can think she's in a gothic novel. And then other characters can use the fact that she thinks that 
as a way to potentially exploit her. And then when her sister is trying to figure out what happened to her, she discovers like, okay, if people thought she, Blake thought she was in a Gothic novel, they could use that to exploit her. And then she uses that to solve the mystery. If that made sense. That was a bit rambly. Apologies. No, no, it was good. And, and I'm glad you went that direction because it's, you know, uh, one thing I should have mentioned is that the meta aspect, this is not a gimmick. This is a plot point. Um, and, it, and it is absolutely crucial to the success of the novel. And frankly, you know, it, it, it's a nice hinge that makes the thing work. Now, I, I'm, I'm you know, absolutely welcome. I'm curious about your relationship with gothic fiction, because I'm putting myself in your shoes and I'm thinking that if I had um, a love of a certain subgenre or trope, even if the novel I was writing was a boring, cliched piece of crap, I would still I'd breeze through it and then I'd go back and look and say, oh, you you wrote a boring, cliched piece of crap. So for you to kind of be on top of it um, at the at the time and kind of pick up on on those little things, on those issues that were making it, you know, just not successful. I, I wonder I guess back to the original was what, what is your relationship with Gothic fiction? Yeah. I'm such a sucker for like all of the, the traditional Gothic stuff, like the formula, like there is something to that formula that just like gets. So it's, and it's funny because even though I could not stomach going ahead and writing, like, even if I, watch something that's cliche traditional got like I still so like um Crimson Peak is like not mm. very good but I fucking love it like the <laughs> the the crumbly that that mansion is like I love it so much like the the red clay that seeps through and the fact that like the actual roof in the foyer like in the place that they live there's like not even really a roof and the snow just comes in and it's that huge staircase and there's like the awesome blood-soaked ghosts and the, the literal buried secrets of like the vats of like red clay liquid in the basements. And I just love all that. And I don't, I guess, I mean, I grew up reading, it's not like I just grew up reading those types of books, but something about them when I did read them, just for whatever reason, they stuck in my head. Like I, I was much more taken by a story like Rebecca um there're just certain pieces of those types of stories just really resonated to my brain like they really scream creepy and like atmospheric and memorable and the care I love the the kind of like damsel in distress character but that comes out on top in the end I don't know I just love it all <laughs> so Does that even I'm answer gonna... your question <laughs> yeah you're good you're good okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna jump in on that one only because one, I read a lot of these when I was younger. We're not going to talk about how young because I was really young. But my favorite part about them was exactly what you just said, like how depressing they were and how full of just decay and rot and despair. It was that the dread, I think, that sort of wormed its way through every page of the story, regardless of what was happening on the page, whether it was big sweeping descriptions of what the parlor room looked like or the dining room or, you know, just pages of, you know, the mantle and the pictures and the the staircase but you had that sense of just the isolation and dread that clung to those descriptions and that was what I enjoyed the most about not only books like that but you nailed it with this one too because you were able to just weave that whole heavy just sense of dread onto every page but I also liked how in the writing of it with Blake sort of thinking she was in her own gothic novel, you also kind of found a way to poke 
fun at them too, which I really enjoyed because like she knew she wasn't in one, but that sense of her witnessing one and experiencing one stayed with her anyway. And you were able to weave all that in while keeping that sense of dread and that little bit of tongue in cheek. And these are the rules, the survivor gothic novel, which I thought was great. I'm going to ask this because I think I have to at this point. Did you intend on sort of poking fun at it or did that just come naturally as you were writing those particular parts? Yeah, I think that's a great, great question because I think it evolved over the different drafts of the book. Like um, Mm -hmm. that scene in the bar where they're actually like talking about the rules that wasn't in like any of the first second third that came a lot later um when I had really like kind of fleshed that element out um and yeah I mean kind of going along with what I said earlier like when I myself was sitting at the keyboard like okay to make this less cliche and trite like I'm gonna inject this element into it like I guess I could have done it totally straight where the characters, I don't know. I felt, I I guess I felt like just by virtue of doing it, there really wasn't a good way to do it without a little humor and and kind of poking fun and kind of um, doubting your own reality, but in like, you know, like in a, am I crazy? But but like, it really has rained every goddamn day that I'm here. And that, (laughs) that kind of element I took from like, I mean, sometimes, sometimes things are cliche. Sometimes you go yeah. to a funeral and it's gray and rainy and the clouds never let up. And sometimes yeah. you, you know, like, so I just kind of took that piece of the way things can just sometimes be a bit of a cliche. And I like leaned hard into it. And then at moments I allowed the characters to kind of step back and be like, this is a little crazy. It's been raining non nonstop. This is nuts. This only happens in a Gothic novel. So along those same lines with the rules, did you intend on that also to be a little bit of a tribute to Scream? 100%. With the rules of... Okay. 100%. I thought so, because I was like, yeah, because this all calls back to them going over the rules and Scream, and here they are in the bar, and they're just kind of like she's letting a little bit of that stress out and letting some of that laughter out because at that point in the book, she's very high strung and she's under a lot of pressure. So that was just one of those moments, again, that I love to see in a book where people sort of let out the absurd, those intrusive thoughts and that little bit of, is this really fucking happening? Like, (laughs) are we really going through this? So I really loved that a lot. And I could not help but get that scene. And that was before I had read the afterward and how you had mentioned Scream opening. And I was like, I could not help but get that whole scene in my head from Scream where they were getting over the rules. And I was like, this is genius. Thank you. Um, And yes, I love Scream. I love the meta aspect of all the films. And I just... Like I was like, and I was kind of writing and I was like, should I, re- can I do this? Should I, am I really doing this? And then I was just like, yep, I'm doing this. <laughs> I have one more see. unless one of you guys yeah. want to jump in. I'm just thinking uh, there's right. some scenes uh, you put in a book and it's like, you, you just, at some point, somebody's going to tell you, you have to take it out. And then it, it makes it through the second cut and the third. And eventually it just makes the final, you know, I guess this lives here now. Yep. Somebody was supposed <laughs> to tell me to get rid of this and they didn't. So yeah. It's insane. <laughs> I was gonna say that the the most fun you can have with a character is the 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 narrator that is um for one reason or another just untrustworthy. But really, you could say that about every single character ever written because we have our own point of view, you know, and we might miss something. I'm not saying it's malicious, but. I mean... You have to have f- fun with it. I mean, what's the point of writing a story if the character is just going to tell you everything right up front and then you don't have a story? Like, you have to have a little bit of that 
misdirection sort of am I leading you down the right path or am I not did you see that vase on the wall did that picture move or did it not like you have to sort of manipulate the reader as you go that's how you entertain them I think like you can't always have it be 100% black and white and yeah, and I, I think that was why it was fun to write Blake because I think she was on such shaky ground that she didn't even know if she was like reliable or not. She was just like yeah. so just just she I, I when I think about her, I think of just like just somebody 30 days into recovery that's just so unsure of reality, like just not only like it would have been hard enough for her to just be doing life 30 days, you know, 30 days into not using substances, but she throws herself onto a ferry, like goes back to the place that she was born, but didn't know until much later in life and tries to find her birth mother. Like this was a terrible idea. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what was your uh, other question, Candace? Sorry. On the character aspect. Um, this is another one I like to ask a lot. Do you, did you have a favorite one while you were writing it? And also, did that character change when you were finished with it? Did you prefer one over the other after you were all done? And why? Yeah, um... So I think Blake and Talia both have a lot of elements of me. They're, there's like, if you took like half of Blake and half of Talia and you put them together, like you'd probably have me. <laughs> uh, so it's like Blake's sort of like the, the way Blake thinks in the novel, not necessarily like all the shaky, like borderline mental health issues stuff, but like how she is kind of more creative in a way like she doesn't think in black and white she's kind of mm -hmm. like drifty she's um I think like that was way easier for me to write it was a way that I like I understood more Talia was supposed to be this like very uptight like I have to put on this front for people and I'm a lawyer and I have to be exactly what people see is what they get and I have to just be super consistent and that to me I was like like I did not know what I was doing with that I was like I think this is a character like I think these are character traits that all like I was just making it up as I went along trying to make her super kind of uptight and by the book and analytical I think mm -hmm. is the word now that's coming to mind um but there are also still parts of Talia like I mean I'm also like very organized like there's parts of her that helped me make her um, mm -hmm. but Blake, I found a much easier character to write. Um, and I do like Blake better. Like I wish she yeah. did not have to die, but she was a very good, Spoiler alert. very good sacrificial <laughs> lamb. I know it's right on the back cover though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say that being in, cause my, my wife, she, uh, she's from New Jersey, but she went to school in Providence and that's where we met. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in, in Providence before I knew her, but way more the few like three years that she was there that I knew her. And I bring that up because uh, especially if you're into Gothic and, you know, for those that don't know, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, the godfather of uh, weird fiction, like it's kind of in the same world. And as far as Gothic goes, like, you got the perfect place in many spots in that, in that state, especially like, you know, Newport, certain parts of Providence too. Um, is there like with Newport, I know that a big attraction there is, especially during Christmas to, to walk those mansions. Is, is that something that you enjoy doing or, you know, block Island itself? Like, is there anything in that state specifically that just makes you so happy and, you just kind of push it into your work. So I love all of the Gothic Rhode Island things, like the mansions, the the kind of coastal communities that are so one way in the summer and then become such a totally different place in the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also very interesting that you bring up Providence and Lovecraft and like that kind of aspect of Gothic Rhode Island. You got a uh, soft spot myself for for Lovecraft and 
weird relationship i know if you like him you no i mean he's you know, he's got his problems but um yeah uh, but i i am allowed to talk a little bit about this now but my my Ooh. second novel is coming out next year and it is called beneath the poet's house and it is set at 88 benefit street in Ooh. Providence, Rhode Island, okay. which was the once home of Sarah Helen Whitman, who was uh, Edgar Allan Poe's brief fiance. Um, and H.P. Lovecraft's shunned house makes an appearance in the book. It, I won't say too much about how or why. Um, oh, my daughter is sitting up like a weird little exorcist zombie on the baby camera. Oh, my. <laughs> Do you, do you want me to cut this part out? Because that's funny as hell. But do you want me to cut that out? You don't have to cut it. She just... All right, perfect. Because <laughs> that's She's... funny as hell. <laughs> I think she just put herself back to bed. Yeah, I just looked down and she was like. Oh, yeah. Did you know that kids are fucking creepy? Yet cute <laughs> as hell? Especially, especially on like nanny cams too. Shit like, like that the, for sure. With the eyes and the dark. Like, okay, she's put herself back to sleep after sitting up and blinking at me in the camera. When, the when, our, talking about camera? when my wife and my, we got her as a puppy in, in Providence. Um, so I would have to take her out uh, at like three in the morning down two levels and that's when Providence is dead silent, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. So it's already creepy enough because, like, there have been stabbings, like, right near. We were literally in between the, these roads were in parallel, between the, the Italian section and the hipster section. Like, literally the street in between those that connected them. And for some reason, um, a lot of, like, not a lot, but there were stabbings near there. And um, that was kind of running through my mind. Like, I got to be alert, even though I feel like passing out right now. And... My dog would look up just like that, stare up in the sky, and I'm like, this is fucked. Why does she always do this? So, yeah, I oh, just wanted to throw a random kids, tidbit. Man. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> They're terrifying. And cats, too. They stare off creepily into the distance at times. They see shit we don't, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, any yeah, anyway, sorry about that. I was just saying that, yes, the next novel is set in Providence um, on Benefit Street, and it has uh, much to do with Edgar Allan Poe and Sarah Helen Whitman as sort of like a modern day residual haunting going on. That sounds cool. So when's that coming? Is that coming out next year? Yeah, I don't have like a, I think it's, I actually think they, it is up for pre-order. Uh, there's no like cover released yet or anything. Um, but I think it's, I don't even know. What the, I got to look. <laughs> I think it's maybe December of next year, but it's um, fall next year, October, November, December, one of the three. I'm very yes. in. There is not yes. enough uh, Providence horror. Um, I was so thrilled reading uh, Paul Tremblay's Paul Bearers Club just because of the setting there and yes. the the way he took it to like water fire and stuff. Yeah. Um, so automatically, automatic buy for me. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's it was so much fun to go there and research and Josh Joshua Rex and Mary Robles were still living there at the time and they took me took me around and gave me some little walking tours and oh, it's so much fun. Have you guys been to prestige in Providence? No. This little hole in the wall cafe. They make the best pastries. Oh, Just throwing that, that out good. there. Like right now. I don't know why it's nine 45 <laughs> at night, but that sounds great. There's no bad time for pastries. <laughs> Brennan, if you, if you don't have something actually have, because I don't want to miss the. Is it going to be about pastries? Are you going to ask a question about pastries? No, I know I'm being ridiculous right now, but yeah, I, no, I it's do... fine. I've got something, so I'll jump in. Um... <laughs> you just set me up to steamroll me. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, <laughs> if you change the subject, I'm going to lose my segue because this is perfect. Um, both the you know the the Block Island setting of uh, this novel, but also the historical Providence setting of the next one. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about mixing authenticity of place with imagination, um, so that you know you're not just reading a guidebook. Yes, um, I definitely think the way I do it is I get inspired by place and. I do my research. And then once I've done that, I just sort of go off and running. And then that's why in both of these books, I have not too lengthy, but like solid five pager afterwards to kind of explain 
like what's fact and what's fiction and where I took liberties and, um, you know, like obviously when I mentioned Whitehall, I, I had to put a little note in there about like how I was very much aware that Whitehall uh, burned completely to the ground in the mid 1900s. I didn't want, because you, know, you know, some people can be, you know, I didn't want to just like put out this book, like, oh, this was a real place and not mm -hmm. call out the fact that it's like, it was a real place, but it's very much not there anymore. Um, and then same, so um, with the Benefit Street novel, so Sarah Helen Whitman's house still stands, but it is five, it's a private residence and it's separated into five apartments. And like, I didn't, of course, I didn't like knock on people's doors. Like, I'm an author. Let me see your place. Like, let me see where you live. Um, I just, I completely just reimagined the inside of the house. And, and I state that in the afterword. Um, there's also other liberties that I took that would be a huge spoiler. So I won't say what they are, but like, I just explain in the afterword, um, like what I did and why. Um, and then same with Daughters of Block Island, because uh, there were some people that kind of both influenced my research and like inspired characters. So I wanted to be clear, like what was fact and what was fiction. Um, but as far as just writing, I, I really inspired by place. So it comes pretty, like if that's actually, so I'm, I'm hoping to start a new novel in the January timeframe. And uh, I'm I'm like homing in on all these different Rhode Island places. Patrick, like you said, like the mansions, there, there's tons of really oh. awesome places in Rhode Island with really or Swan rich Cemetery. history. Where, you know? where Lovecraft is buried. Like, I, I'm not saying this because that's where he's buried. I feel like I'll never be rich enough to be buried there. It is insanely nice. Yeah, never been that, to a cemetery that like cemetery that before. also um, takes that cemetery played into the romance between Poe and Whitman. They spent a lot of time there. So I did a fair amount that, of research. That doesn't that. surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> we got a massive Poe fan, by the way. It's Candace. Yes. Love it. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> oh, no, you so don't. <laughs> um, he's actually the reason why I write. Um, I probably started to read Poe when I was about eight years old. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a very advanced child awesome. when it came to what I read. Um, but once I discovered Poe, I was pretty much hooked. I got a whole bunch of Poe stuff over here. I got a whole bookshelf of nothing but Poe nice. stuff. I won't even save the books because there's about 12, but it's just all Poe. There's little artworks and mugs and whatever, but yeah, I'm a major Poe fan. Love it. There are two neat little anecdotes of him that I love, and one of them is him and his cousin wife. I'm not making fun of him. I don't, his cousin wife. I, I forget her name. They were in the Boston Commons just playing leapfrog over each other. That's real fun to picture. Just him and just just having fun because he he had a pretty he lost some people close to him and that fucked him up for the rest of his adult life. But that and when the Raven came out, he was pretty much like a celebrity. And I, I just I read how look like these younger kids. And I can imagine young candace if she were back then following him just playing for you know fun saying never more never more i'm like that that's so cool just that's really neat because i don't think kids many kids would do that shit today with a poet i i um i used to <laughs> i used to pretend i was poe <laughs> would give performances of the Raven and the Telltale Heart when I was like nine. <laughs> I maintain, ten. I maintain that reading the Telltale Heart aloud is like the most enjoyable thing that you can read as a horror writer and horror yeah. lover. Like I have it's to do the that. best. Oh, it's I want to do that now. I I it's used fun. to get into like the like I would do the voice and like the anger in it and how he slowly becomes more unhinged as it gets along. Yes. Like I would really just go all in and like I wouldn't just read it. I would perform like the Telltale Heart because I think that's what I love the most about it. I read it probably the first time when I was about eight, but by the time I was 10, 11, 
Like I really began to understand like what was happening like emotionally with like his mindset and like just hearing him kind of just go crazier as it went on. So yeah, I used to like actually perform him be just becoming more unhinged as the story went I on. I love it. Yeah, well, so, I was a strange child. <laughs> villains, dissemble no more. Tear up the play. <laughs> yeah. So great. so great. I want to read from this author, Larry Hinkle. He says, is it intimidating to have so many cool people in your writer's group? Feel free to kind of give those that don't know about your writer's group a little insight if you don't mind because you did oh, mention yeah. it earlier and i know about it candace does i'm sure but let's hear about the providence group well so he so i have a couple different groups so oh uh, several years ago i started an hwa chapter in rhode island um and it was tons of fun it brought a really great group of people together but it just got to be a little too much for me to have like a full-time job and be writing and be you know I had a child and um the HWA especially post-COVID they changed some of the requirements to be a chapter and it was a lot more bureau not bureaucratic but like there you know I had to like keep minutes and have um were you voting? You had to vote for like secretary. There was all these things that had to happen. And we just sort of slowly dissembled from an mm -hmm. HWA at chapter. And we just kind of stuck together as um, just a fun group of writers that are generally situated in Rhode Island. But that is a very um, loose categorization because, I mean, we have somebody that was born in Rhode Island and lived here for number of years but lives in Australia now we have somebody that used to be part of a Connecticut chapter that's in the group we have people from all over um so there's that and anybody that's interested in being a part of that group there's a link on my website um there's a Facebook group we go under the name now we are Providence because that's the anthology that we put out together as a group last year at Necronomicon and then what Larry is talking about is, is that we have a Monday night, the Monday night write group um, is just like a fun writer's critique group. And Larry is in it, like Tom Didi mm. and a bunch of people. And we just get together once a month and critique and shoot the shit and give horror movie recommendations. That's awesome. And uh, yeah. I just wanted to say one comment from George Ranson. He said, man, I don't know if I can handle so many of my favorite people on one podcast. As you know, Krista is an incredibly <laughs> talented writer. She's also warm-hearted, personable, and all-around amazing human. I can't wait to listen to the episode. Have a great night, all. I just thought that whole thing was very sweet and very George. George is very George. Very, very George. George. <laughs> we all love George. He's fantastic. George is a nice man. There you go. Nailed it. Very good. <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. All right. Uh, Krista, one thing that uh, I wanted to touch on is uh, both, you know, a little bit in the Daughters of Block Island, but also in your excellent collection, Something Borrowed, Something Blood-Soaked, um, uh, as well as your, uh, your, your story in Orphans of Bliss, Through the Looking Glass and Straight into Hell, which I want to say was stoker nominated did that make the final list excellent yes. yeah well deserved Thank um you. addiction is a common theme in your writing and i wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that yeah absolutely um so i think when i was talking earlier I, it's a great question because i kind of like left a big piece of the puzzle out just for no other reason than to like you know the ab abridged version when we were talking about um, like sending in short stories to be published and how early do you do that when you start writing? And um, so when I kind of had that epiphany of like, oh, I could be a writer. Like, why didn't I think of that? Um, I had also just like stopped using, like it was, or in, I was Blake. I was in early recovery myself. Um, so I was very much like a little bit raw and a little bit like, lacking in a lot of extracurricular activities 
so and I, I did mention earlier like I uh, could got obsessed with you know I was like oh I can write well I'm gonna write every day and I'm gonna buy all these notebooks I'm gonna buy all these pens and I'm gonna write four pages every day and then how many words does that amount to and blah, blah, blah. so it definitely filled in a newly vacated void of just like things that I was doing um and I also find writing professionally or I guess trying to become a professional writer to be very addictive, like, and to kind of follow like similar patterns of <laughs> sounds so terrible. I don't mean it in a bad way, but like it, you know, it kind of like you, you write something and you spend all this time alone and you are pursuing this, this thing that you're trying to accomplish and then you send it out and if it gets accepted you get this like little dopamine rush and it's it's validating and you feel good about yourself and then you go back and you got to do it all over again <laughs> uh so it very much uh it just like worked for me in early recovery and i think that's why i um did a lot of short stories too because you know impulse control and delay of gratification were not uh my faves so short stories were quick and i could do them quickly and i could turn them over quickly and I could, uh, and obviously not perfect them, but I could like try to perfect them more quickly. I could uh, teach myself how to, I could learn what didn't work and what did work a lot more quickly than with a novel. And it just kind of fed the early recovery beast. Um, and then just by virtue of like, you know, a lot of us write what we know or write what we're passionate about or write what we're interested in. It just kind of made its way into a lot of my stories. And then um, now I think it still makes its way. But um, I do think, I don't want to say I do it better now. I think the way I write about addiction now, obviously, 10 years into recovery is very different than when I was doing it 10 years ago. Um, I think 10 years ago, it was very much like acute issues of recovery and um now I do it in like a much more thoughtful like deliberate kind of way because uh, there's just a lot more I'm a, more removed from it and I hit on different um aspects of it so like the orphans of bliss story <clears throat> the way that story came about was because I was so far into recovery but I would still think about stuff relating to substance abuse and my own addiction and I just always was fascinated by um, how much do I, I don't want to like go too far down the rabbit hole with this, but like, so prior to being in recovery, I also worked as a substance abuse counselor. And one of the things that I worked in was uh, a methadone clinic. <clears throat> and I always found the idea of methadone, like it's, it's harm reduction and it's a very good treatment, but on the other hand, it can be very cruel because you're building somebody's recovery on this like false foundation. So somebody could have like, say the same 10 years of recovery that I have, but they're on methadone, but they've mm. pieced every aspect of their life back together. And then if they want to get off methadone, you're like throwing them back 10 years into the past. And I also just like the concept of time and recovery and time and like, kind of going along with the Blake thing we were talking about earlier, like when you're a new recovery, new recovery, like time is shaky and everything's shaky. And um, I just think when I wrote the Orphans of Bliss story, I had been ruminating on the concept of time in recovery and what, what made the time real? Like, is it success? Is it just the time in and of itself? Is it <clears throat> like, what is it? And what can make what can pull the rug out from under that time? Um, so that's like where that story came from, which was a which like I don't think I could have ever conceived of that story ten years ago. Like I needed I needed all of that time myself to come up with something like that. And I think that when you know something like that is such a, a big part of your life, I think it's so valid to write about it over the period of year. You know. It, it, speaking for myself, it's like, I almost feel like, you know, once I write about a subject, it's, there's a part of me that says, well, you should, you've, you've done it now, you should write about something different. But I think there's also a validity to, well, 
I'm writing about this subject as a different person, as an older person, as a more, as a person with different experiences. And, you know, I can write about a certain subject and I can approach it different ways in different periods of my career. And there's, there's an argument to be made to really, I guess, never abandon it and just keep looking at it and seeing what new perspectives you can bring to the table. Yeah, I love that. I think that's very true. I also think that because I've been, you know, in the last three and a half years of having a daughter, I've been writing a lot more like motherhood or like parenting or, you know, the fears that we have as parents. Um, And I'm sure, you know, same thing, You just by virtue of like, when you're a parent, your child is going to go from zero to 18 years old and then beyond. So like, I also think that's that topic fits exactly what you just said as well. Like you can you can come into that and come at that from a billion different perspectives, just you as one person, like uh, as, exactly. as things shift and change. Yeah. Patrick or Candace, anything to add? Um, you, you don't have to, if you're, no, uh, there up. was one point, <laughs> there was one point that, that uh, I could relate to with, um, with Krista is that, <clears throat> she was saying that the writing replaces a habit and i mean like it's no secret i've talked about before like i drank way too much so i quit two years ago because it was either eventually (laughs) it's either lose my family and everything else i love or don't so um obviously i picked the family but um before it got to the tipping point and before i was really uh writing a whole lot i was still like i was still writing the novels and stuff but i noticed that once w- once i quit that and i replaced with this this is now my obsession the show and the writing so I, I get that and the way i see it is if i'm not obsessed on something healthy i'm gonna be bored out of my fucking mind like it is great to spend time with your friends and family but like even with even if you're not a creative artist or whatever you need something else you need something to stimulate your mind that is just how the species works so that's my two cents on that topic yeah i completely agree and i've not found it's it's a pretty great thing to be addicted to or obsessed with whatever you want to call it like i haven't really had any negative effects from being (laughs) addicted to writing and and then when you if you're lucky enough to find a you know one or two even good people that are also in this um this world it's just great you get to do that and if your partner because i know some folks that have partners that are totally into it they're the first reader um my wife has started to read my stuff but um i mean she never does that's fine too but i can bug the shit out of brennan or candace about about books and stuff and they're totally fine with it so uh, I, I don't yes. really know how to end this section. So someone else, please save me. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, the, the community aspect of writing is also a, a very, very strong pull. Um, yeah, yeah I, it's just great. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of the people that I've interacted with over the last five years or so all have had some sort of struggle with um addiction of some type, substance abuse, mental illness issues. I know I have my own depression issues that I've struggled with for most of my life. But when I started to write in the capacity that I write now, I found that it blocks that noise and quiets it and it gives me something to put that into rather than me staring at four blank walls in the dark and just letting my brain just poison every thought that I have in overdrive it gives me something else to put in there and to put out into the world instead of me just focusing on the depression and everything else so I I think it's a healthier way to trade maybe one one addiction, one obsession for another, 
but something that is more helpful and beneficial, not only to you, but others around you. Because while we use it as an outlet for our own hurt or pain or whatever it might be, it lets us process the things that we have went through from the moment we start to write, even up until the time that we grow as a writer from year one to year five to year 10. But your perspective changes time and time and time again as you grow. And I think the people who read us find something of use in that as well, because they also have their own struggles. So even though our thought process and how we process those things change, it's helping them change their thought process as well and helping them grow through some of that as we grow through some of that, which I think is great. And that's also a big reason of why I write the things that I write because I'm processing a lot of what I've went through, but I also hope that those who read it may be able to process some of their own stuff. Yeah, so. that's a great point. That it's not it sometimes it feels like it's entirely just for you because of yeah. how much you get out of it, but it's really, really amazing when somebody else can get something out of it as well. Yeah. And so. there's people listening to this. You know, when the episode airs, there will be people listening to this on the way to what wherever or just doing a mundane task. And like, that might not sound like a lot, but like, I really, my, I have really bad ADHD. I need to listen to something when I'm doing shit like that. And like, I like to be as helpful as I can around the house and clean up the messes that I made so my wife doesn't have to worry about the third child. You know, a child so i'm just saying like even shit like this um i i think it helps more people than we'll ever know because most people probably won't for whatever reason good or bad won't go out of the way be to reach out to you and to say that and that, that's fine but uh i do think that the books or any other art form is one of the most important things that people can do you know agreed and i love podcasts and I love that they're as big as they are now that yeah. people listen to them as much, as much as they do. Yeah. yeah. I have one on at all times. Like, I always have one on. It's just, it calms the noise, mm. too. Like, it calms the noise. It gives you something to listen to, to learn from, to entertain you. Like, what, whatever it might be, whatever mood you're in, there's a podcast for it now. And it's great. You know, so... I don't know. There's, there's just one of the many reasons why I write and why I am involved in this show now and why I have the website that I run now and just all these different things... I like to think that it's helpful to somebody in some way, not just for me writing a, you know, an extreme horror story or a splatterpunk story or a creature feature. I, I I like to think that someone gets something helpful out of it, even if it's just to calm their own noise, you know, because yeah. sometimes we all need we all need that. So absolutely, uh, Krista, is there any final thoughts that or anything about um block island that you want to talk about that we have maybe missed or not discussed um trying to think i guess just that so the the book comes out december 1st mm -hmm. uh it was an amazon first reads pick for november so i know you said our this podcast will air pretty late in the month but uh, there, I think there'll be a few days left once this airs yeah. that the uh, first reads. So anybody that's a Prime subscriber can download the ebook for free. Anybody that's not a Prime subscriber can get the ebook at a discounted rate for the month of November. And then on yeah. December first, the print will release as well. If they're listening to the day that this, the first day it airs, which is November twenty seventh, two thousand twenty three, you'll have four days. To, yeah, get to get that the deal ebook at a discounted rate or to use your prime reads pick if you haven't used it already excellent um 
I really want to read that other Poe inspired novel. So yeah, that's uh like I Lost said, it. that's also um up for pre-order. The cover reveal will, will still be a few months out, but um yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. It's such a weird process, right? So like I'm obviously promoting Daughters of Black Island, but I just turned in edits <laughs> for the Poe book. So I'm like, oh, I kind of want to talk about that one more, but like, no, I can't I have to talk about the one that I've been waiting for it to come out for a billion years. We'll have to bring you back to talk about that because that's so I'd love so to come great. back. Yeah, nice. It's up all our wheelhouses. Um, totally. Candace, any final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts. Let me see. I really enjoyed the story, first of all. If I did not already mention that. I thought it was Thank fantastic. Thank you. Um. I really enjoyed this as well. So thank you for your time this evening, especially the part where you said your daughter sat up like the exorcist because that was great. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and yeah, we definitely want to have you back on because anything that has to do with Poe, I need to know more about. Yeah. I'm going to need an arc. I'm going to need it as you write it. I'm going to need the edits, like whatever you just did. <laughs> That's fair. My email I can totally, is. <laughs> I can totally get you an arc. That's that's totally doable. Thank you. But yeah, um, thank you. So thank you. Those are my final thoughts. Brennan. I'm so pleased we were able to make this happen. Um, and you kind of rattled off how people can get how and when people can get the daughters of Block Island. But I would also definitely recommend that people check out your uh, story collection, Something Borrowed, Something Blood Soaked, because that mm -hmm. is a phenomenal read. Oh, thank um, you. Absolutely. Patrick? Yeah, the my favorite story in that is Bruce Campbell. <laughs> it's so fucking funny, man. I love Bruce Campbell, too, by the way. Oh, that's I'm so glad you brought that up. I have not <laughs> written. I'm So I'm finishing up a story right now for an anthology, and... I feel like it's the first time in a long time that I've written like it's something that's much closer to Bruce the Bruce Campbell story than I've written in a long time like it's just mm. like fun and campy and like blood splattered and just fun so yeah I enjoy that as much as I love the gothic and the classic gothic literature I also love me a good I mean what, what did we say when we were just talking earlier Rebecca meets Scream. Like, that's yeah. me in a nutshell. So. <laughs> that's wonderful. Variety is the spice of life. Yes. And I horror. Just, variety I just is the spice of horror. I just wanted to thank you for, for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. Thank Brennan, you for having me. Bre Brennan has, every single time, he has just talked as highly about you as, as anyone can. And he was just building up the excitement and, uh, yeah, you, you were awesome. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you for having me. December 1st. Um, That's in audio. That's in all formats, right? Yep. Audio, ebook, and print will be December Excellent. 1st. Okay. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Got to check that out. Um, And we're going to have you on whenever that next book is. So stay tuned for that. But next episode will be 221. There'll be Dark Disaster Panel. It's a book that Candace Nola has published. I forwarded, and Brennan has a, a story in. And uh, we're going to have a few contributors in there. Can't wait for that. It's going to be fun as hell. So until next time, thank you for picking up.